This year at Northside, we are uh, on a theme of the light of life. And if you are new to Northside or if you haven't been around as we've talked a little bit about what that theme means, it's essentially learning to walk in the light and understanding that we're not the light, but that his light shows and shines through us. You and I, we are merely conduits to let his light and his glory shine through us. And so one of the things that we've been doing uh, with that as we have gone along is to talk about uh, and offer opportunities to serve in the community. Uh, we were working with Simple House and Carpenter Place and uh, Celebrate Recovery. And which one did I leave out? The soup kitchen. Sorry, <laughs> it was one coming to me. Um, but we have these opportunities to work in the community and to let our light shine in very practical ways. I'm very enthusiastic and excited about what I'm seeing from the different groups. And by the way, if you're serving, I know your signups are at different times and you're doing different things. So we're just going to share some of these every now and again. But if you use that hashtag NS Lights, it'll help us to be able to find those and to be able to share those as well. Not for your glory, but we just want to talk a little bit about some of the good that God's doing through your hands and through your hearts. Uh, this week, we shared the shield class. They went over and helped at Carpenter Place, and they were removing some carpet uh, from the apartments and did just a great job and made a, what would have been a fairly large task a pretty quick work because they had uh, lots of good hands and good help. And so uh, I want to thank the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. class for their help with that. And uh, any uh, anyone else as you're participating with Carpenter Place or Soup Kitchen or any of the good ministries that are happening, uh, make sure that you tag that, uh, use that hashtag so that we can uh, make sure to let the good news be shared with others. We are on Sunday mornings in a series called Declutter, and it's talking about learning to choose what is best and leave the rest behind. Last week, we talked about Mary and Martha and uh, how their approaches to Jesus were very different. You and I have a choice to make whether we're going to be a Mary or a Martha in being choosing to be present with Christ and to discard some of the distractions. I hope that you did that this week. Uh, we had lots of wadded up uh, post-it notes I noticed in the trash cans as you left. And so I hope that you didn't just leave that here, but that you intentionally, purposefully, actively uh, took the opportunity to remove the things that were distracting you from the presence of Christ. I have an old truck. It is a 2001 Ford Explorer Sport Track. And I love that truck. It's been a great, it's, it's just been a great truck and, uh, got a good deal on it. But it's kind of this, it's kind of a merge between an SUV and a truck. So it's got all the good parts of an SUV and plus it's got the open bed where you can, you know, haul a load of mulch or do whatever. It's just a great truck. Pat Weber has one just like it. And, or he did. No, he doesn't. It's gone on to its reward. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, the problem is, is that um, is the odometer keeps climbing, and uh, my wife weekly reminds me how much she hates my truck and all the things that need to be done to it. But it's mine. It's good. It's faithful. It's it's a good tool. Um, but I got to be careful with it. Uh, on my truck, on the dash, or, or something probably that's in your car as well, is this very uh, important metric, and that is the. Uh, RPMs. It's looking at, you know, are you keeping the engine running as it's supposed to be? Is if you get up too far, uh, too many revolutions per minute in the old crankshaft, 
uh, you're going to have some problems because you're doing more than the engineers at Ford Motor Company designed that truck and that engine to do. They call that the red zone, by the way. Uh, and you can call the, the red zone, uh, use that as a metaphor for life. It's any area or pro- a place in your life where there's a real potential for problems. Are you living in the red zone these days? That's kind of what I want to ask you. Are you pushing the RPMs farther than your maker intended you to be pushed? Are you uh, wondering about that? Here are some signs. One, you avoid engaging people. Uh, You find people to be very stressful and relationships to be difficult, and so you just try to isolate yourself. And when you're around people, all you tend to do is complain about how terrible your life is. Maybe sign number two, your energy is low. Your stress is high. Your joy has faded. Number three, people keep asking you questions like, are you tired? Is everything okay? No, thank you. This is just how ugly I normally am. Thank you. But they keep asking these questions. It means that people are noticing that you don't seem to be yourself. Fourth one is you come home and all you want to do is go to bed. And when you get to bed, you can't sleep. Maybe you're in the red zone. Fifth one is small things are setting you off. You suffer with constant low simmering rage. And you're blowing up at people for things that don't require blowing up. Maybe you default to Eeyore thinking in everything you do. You're always looking for the worst. You're always believing the worst. You're always expecting the worst to happen. In general, you're feeling exhausted, drained, overwhelmed, overscheduled, depleted, discouraged, and defeated. I ran across a book, and a guy named Dr. Richard Swenson, I gave a quote about this, and he said there's one solution for living in the red zone of life, and that is to make some margin. He says, and he describes it this way, margin is the space between our load and our limits. Margin is the gap between rest and exhaustion, the space between breathing freely and feeling like you're suffocating. Margin is the opposite of overload. If the RPM level is up there in the red zone, margin is, is just a little above idle, where it's functioning, but it's not over-functioning. However, he goes on to say, margin is not something that just happens. You have to fight for it. If I look around at our culture today, and I know that the church is not immune from the influence and the example of culture That's what I would say we need to work on the most, is fighting for margin in our lives. Fighting for the space between our load and our limits. Um, I want you to think about it like this. When I say the word margin, you imagine a piece of paper, something like this, and that piece of paper has a little line on it. And that line prevents you, or it's supposed to prevent you, it's supposed to say, you start writing here. 
And this keeps us, those of us with the bad handwriting, uh, from going off the edge of the page. It kind of keeps things where they should be. It gives us a little room for error. Okay? We need to live within the margin. If I turn the paper this way for just a moment, let me propose to you that this line represents what God has provided in your life. He's given you so much income to work with. He's given you so many hours in the day. And he wants you to live within the margin. But a lot of times, especially in our culture, uh, we, we seek to go above the margin. So God's provided me this level of income and I know I can't afford these things, so what I need to do is go borrow heavily so that I can live above the margin. So that I can live like my friends are living, so that I can keep up with everyone else. Say, I'm living above the margin. And when you get to the point where you're living above the margin, you're going to be stressed. You're going to be immediately into the red zone. What about your time? God's given you just enough time to do just enough good for today. And yet some of us are intentionally saying, you know, I can survive on two or three hours of sleep. I'm good. I'm good. We we try to cram so much into our own lives, into the lives of our children, because we wouldn't be good parents if we weren't maximizing every square inch of their day. And we not only live past the margin in our time, but we teach our children to do that as well. We live in a culture that is increasingly ignoring the margin, and we are paying the price for it. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we think about how we declutter and how we begin to make some margin and fight for the margin that is so important. So won't you join me as we go on this journey and and think about how Jesus did it and how God calls us to do it as well. First, we have to seek out Communion with God. Uh, You think about it. Jesus was not an unbusy guy. He was crammed full, especially as he began to do the miracles and the good works and the ministries, as he began to preach and develop thousands and thousands of people in a crowd that would follow him just to see him, just to catch a glimpse of him, just to hear his voice. Guys, if you would mind just putting it, uh, the lights on projection mode. I know it seems like some people are squinting, having a hard time seeing what's on that screen back there. Uh, if Jesus was a busy guy, Luke chapter 5 records these words. Um, that, In fact, if you read the whole chapter, it's pretty amazing what Jesus was doing just in one chapter. Starts off by calling his first disciple. Then he heals a man with leprosy. Then he forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Then he calls Levi and eats with the sinners. He's questioned about fasting. He he has a lot of stuff to do. But there's one thing that Luke points out here that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Verse 15 in Luke chapter 5. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear To hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus had many, many people that were making demands on his time and wanting to see him and wanting to be near him. And Jesus, for as busy as he was, 
was not too busy for God. Some people say, well, I'm too busy to pray and read my Bible. I'm just really, I just, I don't, I do that the first Sunday. But listen, Jesus considered it differently. He considered it that he was too busy not to pray. He had so many things to be done in such a short, narrow window of time that he needed time every single day to disengage from the crowd so that he could engage with his father. When was the last time you engaged with your father? I don't mean reading the Bible, preparing for class, or reading the Bible as part of a program, or praying because you felt guilty, but I mean communed with your father. At the Levering household, we have a tradition where we kind of go in and do the bedtime routine. I'm sure that's probably one that's a familiar routine in your household as well. You go in, you talk about the day, maybe you read a story book, read, sing a song, and, and pray. The reason that I do that and that Christy does that is because we want to be close to the hearts of our children. We want to take time and to know what they're thinking and to know what they're going through and to, to help guide them and to put good things in their mind and in their heart and to lead them to the Lord. But there's going to come a time when at the end of their day, Tyler and Grace will go to a bed and mom and dad very likely will not be there to tuck them in and walk them through the day. And my job as a parent is to make sure that they understand that just as badly as their father wants a relationship with them, their earthly father, that their heavenly father wants a relationship with them so much more. May we teach our children about that, not by just doing it with them, but by helping them to see it in us. Do they see us yearning for a relationship with God? Or do they see us pushing to the limits on every single thing and throwing ourselves into bed exhausted and wondering why life is so out of control and so stressed? Where's your chair is the question I want to ask you. Where's your chair? Where's the place where you go to meet with God? Where you talk to him, where you listen to him, where you just abide in his presence. Where's your chair? Where do you sit with God and do that? If you don't have a chair, if you haven't been there in a long time uh, and you're waiting for a word from the Lord, then let me present to you a word from the Lord. Your father misses you and he wants to talk to you again and he wishes that you could understand that if you'll just trust him more, And stop trying to figure everything out on your own. That things would go a lot better. I hope that you'll spend some time in a chair this week. And that you'll use that place and that space for a relationship with God. You're not too busy. You just have become distracted. Turn to Psalm chapter 23 verses 1 through 2. You probably know Psalm chapter 23. But it's interesting how it is described by David. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me 
lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. I'm calling you this morning to leave the crowd and commune with God. But is it possible? Is it within the realm of possibility that God, your father and your shepherd, after a time and time and time of you ignoring and ignoring and ignoring him and not making time for him, would it be within the realm of possibility that God might make you lie down? That God might lead you to a place of stillness in order that you might once again return to him and focus on him. Oh, I pray that he wouldn't have to make you, but sometimes a good shepherd will make the sheep go to places that they need to go because they don't understand how good it is for them to be there. May we seek out communion with God and the quiet waters. Number two. Jesus searched out community with others. Of course, he had friends as well. Jesus wasn't just this isolated, alone rabbi, but he was a people person. He loved people. People loved him. Do you understand that Jesus didn't attract crowds by being a jerk? People liked to be in the presence. I have no doubt that he was merciful and compassionate and thoughtful and considerate and helpful. My question is, do people see Jesus in you? Turn to the book of Mark. The book of Mark records this in a different way. And again, I'll ask you guys if you would mind just to put that in projection mode, please. That would help oh so much. Mark chapter 1. Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. He said, I thought you said Jesus wasn't a loner. Okay, bear with me, keep reading. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. That's such a good sign. Number one, that the disciples were seeking out Jesus, that they noticed when he was gone and that they were willing to say, hey, there are other people looking for you as well. My question to you and and really to myself this morning is, who do you have in your life that's looking for you? Most of us in our world are increasingly starved relationally. We, we think we can, we think we can do it with this. We think this makes us sociable. But we still need as human beings, face to face, kneecap to kneecap, time with people. You may sit there this morning and you're kind of getting a little pouty now because you're like, nobody's looking for me. Nobody loves me. Alright, then turn it on its head, silly. Who have you been looking for? Who have you sought out? Who have you looked for in class that hasn't been there in a while? Who have you looked for at your pew that you haven't noticed their face in a while? Who have you sought out? 
We gotta, we gotta work both sides of the equation, but we gotta be in relationship. We gotta have connection to one another. And there is no biblical imperative on how that's done, but it must be done. We have to have relationship with one another. You gotta seek, when you're looking for people, make sure you seek quality over quantity. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And see, most of the time what will happen is when people are starved relationally, even with when they're in the church, then what happens is they, they will seek out relationships that are not good for them, that are darkness. That will lead them away from Christ and they will follow because they are starving. The church needs to be a place of relationship and connection. Seek friends who are friends of Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. These are the people who would be there for you and would give of themselves for you. But listen to this. Look what he goes on to say in John 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. You see, it's not just surrounding yourselves with a bunch of people. It's surrounding yourself with the quality of people who say, yes, we want to do what Jesus commands to do. This past week I had an experience, kind of personal, in that last week was just exhausting. We were an hour short. I had preached and then I had something to do afterward and that took a couple of hours. And I came home about 3 o'clock and our small group meets at 4 o'clock. And I told my wife, I said, I have just got to rest or I will not make it for Sunday night. I'll come up here and fall asleep. And most people might be okay with that. I don't know. But I didn't feel right about that. So I said, I'm just going to go. I need to rest. I'm not going to make it to small group tonight. Later that night, someone in our small group texted my wife and said, hey, is Toby okay? Now, that's just a small thing, but it it reminded me how blessed I am to have a family to have. And I love all of you, but there, there are people in my life who are looking out, who are watching for Toby because they know that Toby's human, too. That he's flawed, that he has frailties, that he has weaknesses, that he does not have all the answers. Can I get an amen? But that he knows one who does. And I'm so grateful to have relationships with people who, who are doing what Jesus commands to do. The first command to love God. The second command to love each other. So may we not forget to do that. May you, may you look for community and may community be looking for you. Finish up with this one. We have to strive for contentment in life. In, in God's provision, go back to our margin here. 
God has given you this much. Be careful not to be tempted with greed and strive to go over the line. You say, that greed, greed's not a sin for me. I don't have any money. Hold on a second. Greed is not a rich man's sin. There are people who have no money who will cheat and lie and do whatever they can to try to get ahead to get above that line. Jesus said in John chapter 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Having money, having stuff, that's fine. Just don't let money and stuff have you. The anecdote, by the, the anecdote for greed, by the way, is giving. If you're struggling with greed, what you've got to do is open your hands and give it away. You need to sell some stuff, donate some stuff, take some stuff to the DAV. Because if this stuff is wrapped around your heart, the only antidote that I know is to give it away. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a wonderful blessing of God to be able to live below the line. And so you have some margin in your line. So when someone is going to have a few extra medical bills this month, you can say, Let's write a check. When someone you know is struggling with their rent or with their electric bill, you can say, let's help. Let's be a blessing. But the people who can't bless other people are the ones who are constantly in the red zone. They have no money because it's all going to payments. They have no, they, they have no room to help, even if they want to help. But if they can be content, they can, they can do what God calls them to do. So may we strive for contentment today. The verse that Greg read, for I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, for I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether we're living in plenty or want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I know we like Philippians 4.13 by itself, but that really by itself is not meant to be an all, a catch-all verse for every single problem that you have. What it is saying is that we need to be content and we can do that through Christ alone. Regardless of your income, regardless of your job status, regardless of your relational status, when you have Christ, you have everything that you need. And you can learn to be content. As Greg pointed out, he was writing that from prison. May we not forget the parable of the fisherman. After I graduated from business school, I decided to take a vacation. I chose a small, quiet fishing village where I thought I'd be able to take my mind off of business, if only for a few days. Walking along the beach just before sunset, I saw a small fishing boat come into shore. Inside the boat were lone fishermen and several beautiful yellowfin tuna. How long did it take you to catch those fish, I asked. Only a couple of hours, he replied. Why don't you stay out a bit longer and catch more, I asked. 
certain that there must be a demand for more fish than the few I saw in the boat. The fisherman smiled. I catch enough to support my family, and I live a full and busy life. I rise with the sun, fish a little, play with my daughters, have lunch with my family, and then teach children how to fish before I stroll into the village each evening, where I sip wine and play guitar with my wife and friends. Listen, I said, I have an MBA. I can help you vastly expand your business. If you would simply spend more time fishing, you would soon earn enough money to buy a bigger boat. Really? Questioned the fisherman. Absolutely. And with a bigger boat, you'd soon catch enough fish to buy several boats than a whole fleet. At that point, you'd be big enough to sell your fish directly to a processor, cutting out the middleman and greatly increasing your profits. The fisherman raised an eyebrow. Hmm. Eventually, you could open your own cannery and control the product, the processing, and the distribution. I added. Then what? He asked. Well, you then relocate your operations to the capital, and if all goes well, you'd likely find yourself in New York City and control a rapidly expanding empire. How long would all of this take? He asked, clearly following my logic. Oh, probably between 10 and 15 years. I replied. And then what? Well, that's the best part. You would announce an IPO and sell stock to the public. At that point, my friend, you would be very, very rich—a millionaire many times over. The fisherman paused. Really, a millionaire? Then what? What do you mean? I answered, a bit surprised. I mean, what would I do if I were a millionaire? What kind of question is that? Whatever you like, of course. I imagine you retire, move to a small coastal fishing village where you would rise with the sun, fish a little, play with your granddaughters, have lunch with your family, and. Then teach children how to fish before strolling into the village each evening, where you'd sip wine and play guitar with your wife and friends. The fisherman smiled, and without saying another word, began to build a small fire. We shared a taste of the delicious fish and watched the sun go down over the ocean as the sound of guitars rose from the village nearby. The challenge is the lesson taught by the fisherman to his young friend. And that is to make margin. You got to make margin. You got to take time to make communion with God. You need the time to seek out community with other people, and you need to learn to be content for today. I want you to think about those three things for just a second: communion with God. You cannot have communion with God without Jesus. It is impossible. Jesus spent time with the Father, but He came so that you could have access to time with the Father. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me." When you think about relational margin, community with others, Jesus is the reason. That, look around this room for just a second. You see so much difference in who we are: young, old. White, black, poor, rich. Every single story has come together. What brings us together? Only one. That's exactly right. Only one can do that. The same Savior who could bring together tax collectors and zealots. The same, the same Savior who could bring together God and man has brought us together to work together. You can't have community. Communion with God without the union with Christ. You can't have the community with your brothers and sisters in Christ without the unity in Jesus. 
and material margin is your contentment with your life. Jesus, Jesus is the content of our contentment with him. No matter what the situation, no matter what you're facing this week, you can be content. Because you know the victory is his. And the victory can be yours. We need more margin. In short, we need more of the Messiah. So this week I want to call you to create more margin in your life. And I want to ask you this morning as we close, have you decided to follow Jesus? A lot of churches talk about Jesus A lot of people know about Jesus, but when I ask you this morning, have you decided to follow Jesus? Is your center of your life in him and him alone? If you're ready to begin that journey and you want to put him on in baptism, we'd be happy to help you. Or if you've put him on in baptism, but you found yourself disconnected from God, disconnected from others, and completely distracted by all the stuff of life. Come, come this morning. We'll pray with you. We'll encourage you. We'll help you. We're here for you to help you know him. Whatever your need is, please come as together we stand and sing.